morning's reading comes from John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world." My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in in me through their message. All of them may be, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to full unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me before you loved me, before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. 
I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have, have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Thanks, Fred, very much. Well, it's uh, great to see you here. Particularly warm welcome if you're visiting. It's good to see some um, less familiar faces here, but you're really welcome, and I uh, hope you enjoy your time with us today. Um, I uh, was a little bit nervous about the rugby yesterday, but I still thought England would come through. So I said to a, a friend of mine, uh, if we lose, I'll still be in mourning this morning, and I won't be able to preach. You'll have to do it. Um, he got stage fright this morning and passed the buck back to me, so you got me, I'm afraid. Um, But we're starting a a new series today that's going to take us up to Easter Sunday, April the 1st, uh, looking at uh, John's Gospel, chapters 17 through to 19. It's really a run run through the Easter story uh, up to the point of Easter. And we're starting today in chapter 17, looking at a wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed. Some of the last words that the Lord Jesus spoke, where he prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples... He prayed for the disciples to come in the future. And it's a, it's a really wonderful passage. So I hope and pray it will be useful. And I had a really good time praying this morning. Um, I prayed for you, if you are a follower of Christ, that these truths which I know that you will know will become more and more real deep in your heart today. And I prayed for you too, if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I prayed that you would come to see these truths because they're absolutely life-changing truths when we grasp what they're all about. And that was my prayer this morning. Many of you will have seen the news this week on Wednesday, um, the famous Billy Graham went to be with the Lord, age 99. Um, Billy Graham will have touched many people's lives, particularly some here of an older generation may have been touched personally by Billy Graham, having been at his rallies or heard him speak, read his books. Um, a very influential man. They reckon that since 1947, when his public ministry began, 215 million people heard the gospel through his work. What an amazing servant. Uh, the last time anything that he spoke um, was publicly, uh, pub- publish- uh, published was in 2005. He'd just spoken at a conference, and the last three addresses he gave at this conference were put into a book, and it was the last thing that was published by Billy Graham. And he was asked to write the epilogue, a kind of final message that he would give. And these are his closing thoughts on the final two pages. I've just put two thoughts together. He said this, No matter what the problem is, if you and I could sit down and talk... I would want to tell you of one great truth. God loves you, and he can make a difference in your life if you will let him. God loves you so much that he sent his son into the world to die for your sins. When we open up our hearts to Christ, he forgives us our sins and comes to live within us by his Holy Spirit. He also gives us strength for the present and hope for the future. This is the message of the gospel. And this is the message you have read in this book. They're very powerful, aren't they? As parting words of a really great leader. And in John chapter 17, we get the parting words of not just a great leader, but of a great saviour, our saviour. John 17 is really the beginning of the last words that Jesus speaks. And as I've said before, it's a prayer that he prays for himself, for his disciples, for future disciples who will yet be made. And I pray that we would listen, that we would be challenged, that we would be comforted by these amazing words. And what's remarkable about the back end of all the Gospels that talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus is you would think that that would be a very sad thing. Focusing in on the death of someone 
you think, why is there joy in that? And yet, remarkably, the back end of all the Gospels that focus in on the Easter story are filled with hope. Because it's in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we find hope. So come to chapter 17 of John's Gospel. Look at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. And do you notice how he addresses his Father in heaven? He says, Father, the hour has come. Jesus prays 21 prayers in the Gospels, and in 20 of them, he addresses his Father in heaven as Abba Father, Father. There's only one place where he doesn't call his Heavenly Father, Father. And it's on the cross where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment of separation, he cries out and uses a different name for God. But every other time, he calls his heavenly father, father. And that tells us something really important. It tells us that within God, in his very being, is relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, relating within who God is in a deeply relational way. And that should tell you, as you look at who God is, you should tell, it should tell us what God is about. God is relationship, and he's therefore about relationship, which means relationship with him really, really matters. And Jeff began to introduce us to that in the children's talk, talking about what eternal life means. But we don't just see intimate relationship within the Godhead, we also see unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, working together to bring about God's purposes. So do you see in verse 1... Jesus prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. The son and the father working together. And this glory that is spoken of in this prayer is seen most remarkably and most powerfully in the cross and in the resurrection that we're beginning to think about as we build towards Easter. So I want you to think for a moment about the word glory. What does it mean when we talk about glorifying God? What does it mean when we describe the glory of God? What, what on earth is all that about? Think of a few words that might help you. Glory speaks of splendor. Glory speaks of perfection. Everything God is, he is perfectly. So God can't be improved. He can't be added to. There's no aspect of God where you'll find some other being who is greater or more perfect. In the Ezekiel series we did a few months ago, I helped us to see that part of the word glory is about understanding weightiness or magnitude. And also, glory has a sense of being on display for people to see. As one writer has put it, God is in a class by himself. He has infinite perfections, infinite greatness, and infinite worth. If you were with us on Sunday evening last week, In the Daniel series, I put this picture on the screen, which really speaks a million words about what glory is. I'm going to give you a moment to do what we did on Sunday night last week. Look at that picture. Place yourself as the individual in that picture. How does that picture remind you of who you are in God's world? Just take a moment to reflect on it. Glory is to do with perfection. It's to do with splendor. It's to do with magnitude. It's to do with weightiness. It's to do with understanding who God is in the world he made and who we are as his creatures. I'm going to put on the screen a couple of questions. Now, I would like you to turn to someone next to you and speak about it. If you really don't want to do that, you don't need to. But I hope that people next to you are not so much an enemy or an alien that you don't feel you can talk to them. Just want you to answer these two questions. And if you, if you want, you can do it in your heart. That's fine. Interestingly, one of these questions was one that was asked yesterday at this training event we had on worship. Here's the first question. 
Is God arrogant for wanting glory for himself? When all through the Bible God says, look at me. First question, is God arrogant for saying that? Second question, when God calls us to live for his glory, is he being a spoil sport? Just reflect on that for a moment and if it's helpful, you can just have a chat with the person next to you. Well, I'll, uh, I'll jump in there uh, to save, save your bacon if you're really finding this uncomfortable. Um, you, you could do a whole sermon series just on these subjects. They're massive subjects. Of course, you're not going to be able to answer that question or think about it properly. But maybe go away and think about it. But just in short, is God arrogant for wanting glory for himself? When God says, look at me, make me the center of your life. He's not arrogant because he is the creator of everything. And if God was to say, you could worship me and put me at the center or choose something else. He wouldn't be true to himself because he would be saying, there's something else that's as amazing as I am. There's something else that's as satisfying as I am. And so to ask the second question, is he being a spoil sport where he says, put me at the center of his life? Absolutely not. He knows, because he created us, that anything else we put in the center of our life that's not him, however much joy we may legitimately get from this thing, will not truly satisfy in the way that he can. It just won't. So when he says, live for my glory, is actually the kindest act that God could ever pursue. So we're going to think about the cross and the resurrection. Come to verse 2. Why is there glory in the death of Jesus? Verse 2 says, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Eternal life is a gift. Ephesians 2 verse 8 makes that very clear. We're not saved through the work that we do. We're saved by grace. It's a gift that God gives. And God's desire is for you both to see who he is and to know that. And to know him. And exactly what we looked at with the children earlier on. God's desire is that you see who he is and know that deep in your heart. What does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 4? The God of this age, Satan, he's blinded the eyes of unbelievers... So when they look at Jesus, they can't see the glory of God. Jesus is just a fictional character or a man of history or a swear word. But the verse goes on to say, but God who said, let there be light, shone his light into our hearts to reveal to us the glory of God in the face of Christ. Two different people can look at Jesus and have very, very different responses because one has had their eyes open to see his glory for who he is. The other remains blind. But what does it mean then to see who Jesus is and to know him? We'll come to the passage, verse 3. What does it mean to know God? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jeff was exactly right earlier where he said eternal life isn't primarily in the Bible speaking of eternity in terms of time, length. I think sometimes we get this wrong and we sometimes don't get excited about heaven because we've watched too many Red Bull adverts or we've watched um, Bruce Almighty, and we've got an idea that heaven will be sitting on clouds, playing a harp, probably wearing white socks pulled up to our knees, wearing sandals, eating cucumber sandwiches and singing Kumbaya. That's the caricature that we often see in cartoons. You'll see it when you watch The Simpsons, anything like that. And if that's a picture of heaven, I do not want to be there. But if we have a robust biblical understanding of heaven, and we think about a physical place... A little bit like this world, but everything that is good and you enjoy in this world, infinitely better for eternity. That begins to get a little bit closer to what heaven will be like. But because we've got a wrong understanding of heaven, we get a wrong understanding of eternal life. And eternal life in the Bible isn't ultimately speaking of length of time. 
kind of a monotonous existence, which we might think is quite dull. Eternal life is more talking about the quality of life. Cast your mind back to Genesis chapter 2 in the garden. Probably loads of trees in Eden, but two trees specifically are drawn attention to. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who put it there? God did. Because God is the one who determines what is good and what is evil. There was another tree in the garden. It was the tree of life. And the tree of life was in the garden. Who else was in the garden? Adam and Eve. Who else was in the garden? God. The point was, where God is, there is life. Which is why when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, they were cast out of the presence of God, and they no longer enjoyed eternal life. Eternal life is not talking in the Bible primarily about quantity, length. It's talking about quality. It's talking about a life with God at the center. Eternal life literally means the life of God. And what is the life of God? What is the reason that you were created and I was created? The life of God is to know God. That's what he created us for. Verse 4, Jesus says, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. It's a bit of a mouthful, but what is Jesus saying? He's saying this. He's praying to his heavenly Father, and he's saying, Lord, show people who I am, and show people what the true life of God is. And he's going to go to the cross to show people how this eternal life, this life of God, can be known and experienced. And so when we talk about knowing God, we're talking about seeing who he is, we're talking about knowing who he is, and experiencing this life of God, eternal life. And what I'd like to do for the rest of this morning is to focus in on three qualities that Jesus prays here in this prayer to help us understand something more about what eternal life really means. And I've done it as three Ps so that you can remember them. Here's the first one. I want you to know this morning just how precious you are. Let me read from verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. What Jesus is saying there when he prays for his disciples is he's saying they are infinitely precious. You just look at your fingerprint. Seven billion people on this planet, nobody has a fingerprint like yours. And that is not an evolutionary accident. That is a creator God who says you are precious. So as you reflect on the cross this Easter and you think about Jesus who hung on that cross, as he hung on the cross, he was thinking about you by name. And he was thinking of me by name. You are infinitely precious in the sight of God. This week I was speaking at a local school where they're like Christian Union gathering, about 30 pupils around a table. Uh, We were eating pizza and they gave me the subject to speak on, how do I know that my life will be successful And I chose to speak from Mark chapter 12, where Jesus 
summarizes the law, the Old Testament law, in two things. He says, this is really what most, most matters, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm trying to help the children to see that the two most important relationships, the relationship with the Lord who created you and the relationship with those around you, when they are right, then you can look at your life as being success. Because life is all about relationships with people. Well, we thought about the second one. We turned in pairs to talk, and I had one of the young girls next to me, and I was talking to her, and she said, I'm interested in what you're saying, but here's a problem. Love your neighbor as yourself. And she said to me, how can I love my neighbor when I don't love myself? Do you know, I meet a lot of people who don't love themselves, and I'm looking at this room now, and I'm looking at some of you, and you don't love yourselves. People who live with shame from mistakes they've made in the past, people with real problems with their body image, people who regret decisions they've made, people who don't think they're any good or could ever be useful to God. But what Jesus Christ says as he prays this prayer is he says, you are infinitely precious. Every single one of you. Because I gave you a thumbprint that's not, that is different to every other human being that's ever lived and will ever live. Sometimes we forget that. But Jesus wants you to know how infinitely precious you are. And this girl, he very honestly said, how can I love my neighbor if I don't love myself? She will only begin to love herself when she recognizes how precious she is in the sight of God. You're precious, and Jesus prays that truth. But it's because you're precious that you can know the second truth, that you are protected. Have a look at verse 11, second half. Jesus prays this, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them. Literally, I guarded them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I just want you to focus in on the second half of verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. See, there's a remarkable thing going on here. One of the greatest things that people fear is death. And when I take funerals, particularly funerals of people who didn't know and trust Jesus Christ, it can often be a terrible time because there's so much uncertainty. There's so much questioning without answers. And yet here there's an answer. Charles Spurgeon, who's the famous 18th century Baptist preacher, said... Each time a treasured believer is called home, speaking of death and going to be with the Lord, it is a fulfillment of this prayer. So you take the death of our dear friend Steve Pashley recently, who trusted in Christ. When he was called home, he in himself was a fulfillment of this prayer of Jesus. Because Jesus prayed and said, protect them by the power of your name. And it's the power of God that protected Steve through death. And we know that he's with this heavenly father in glory. Jesus promises to protect us through the one thing that none of us can control. However good our medical insurance is, however healthy our life has been, there's one thing that we have no control over. We will all die. But Steve is an answer to this prayer because Jesus Christ protected him in death. Because he smashed death to pieces on the cross and said, death can't hold me and it can't hold anybody who trusts in me. I don't believe there's a single person in the world who wouldn't want that security in death. I really don't. 
And so it puzzles me why people reject Jesus. But not only here is Jesus praying for protection in death, he's also praying for protection in life because he knows to be a follower of the Lord Jesus is difficult. Have a look at verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus here was praying that if you have put your trust in Christ, that God the Father would protect your faith and protect you to the day that you die, to help you to keep going. And all of us have times when we go, I can't keep going. I doubt. I can't keep going. The situation in my life is just too hard. And when you can keep going, again, you are fulfillment of this prayer. Because Jesus prayed, Father, protect them in life, and protect them in death. So there's two glorious truths. You are infinitely precious in the sight of God. And because of that, you know that you are protected. But when you put those two things together, we come to the third thing. We find that we can be fearless in living out the purpose for which God created each of us. Verse 17 says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Truth there is not an adjective describing God's word. Truth there is a noun. Your word is truth. As you sent me, verse 18, into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now often in the Bible, sanctification is about, it speaks more about God changing our hearts to become more like Christ. Getting rid of the old self, putting on the new self. But sanctification also talks about being set apart. It has that relationship with the word holy, being set apart. And here, where Jesus prays that uh, his followers would be sanctified, he's speaking of it in the latter sense. Being set apart for the purpose for which God created you and created me. Jesus was set apart for the work that his heavenly father gave him to do on earth. Which was to go to the cross, to defeat death, so that we can have life. And God equipped him for that. It was God who enabled him to pray that prayer in the garden. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And just as Jesus was set apart for the work and equipped to do it, so too you, if you're a Christian believer, have been set apart. And God will equip you for the work that he calls you for. My prayer, verse 20, is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. The disciples who became the apostles who passed on the gospel through the generations, has led to many in this room putting your faith in Christ. And you know, you are the answer to this prayer, if you're trusting in Christ. Because Jesus prayed, I'm not just praying for these disciples who are going to trust me, I'm praying for every disciple who comes in the future. And I'm one of them, and many of you are one of them. You are an answer to this prayer that Jesus prayed. And as we come to a close, verse 26. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. See, what happens when you recognize how precious you are, and you have security in the fact that you are protected in life and in death by Jesus, you then are given a purpose Not a purpose to live life your own way, but a purpose to live life the way God created you to live. 
And what happens, friends, when God is in us, when we truly know him, in the sense of what eternal life is really about, when God is in us, he spills out of us. And it's his love in us that spills out of us into a lost and broken world around us. So I pray that you will know that you are precious this week. I pray that you'll have confidence and assurance that you are protected in life with all that it throws at you and in death. And I pray that you will know the purpose for which God created you, which is to pass on this extraordinary message of his love to a world that's calling out to be loved, but looking for love in the wrong place. As we finish, I want to give you all a challenge. It's a £20 challenge. Um, the way this challenge works is that sometime this week or next Sunday, you need to give me £20. Now, I'll explain this challenge. <laughs> I'm not just trying to top up some sort of pension pot or something. It's a genuinely serious challenge, though. You need to give me £20 if you want to play this challenge. And here's the deal. If you give me £20, I will get you 20 copies of this book. £20 is not much money when you think about all the different things we do in our lives. This book is a great little book that helps talk about eternal life. It helps talk about the things that we've been looking at. It explains to people that they're precious. It protect, explains to people that in the gospel they can be protected. It talks about the purpose for which God created us. Do you love the person that you know who doesn't yet know Christ enough to give up 20 quid to pass it on to me and I'll buy you 20 of these books so that you can pass one of these on to someone so that they can understand how precious they are and how they can be protected and how they can have a purpose for their life. We did this exercise with our Friday afternoon prayer group a few weeks ago because I was so convicted we talk a lot about sharing our faith. We never do it. So I said to the guys, we're going to do it this week and I'm going to do it too. And next week we're going to come back and we're going to share some stories of how it went. And I said, I bet you're scared and I bet you're nervous about the reactions people will give. And everyone goes, yes. And I go, well, guess what? Me too. And I brought more books than there were people in the room. So I had to do two. And we went out and we prayed for opportunities to speak of Christ and to share his love with people around us. People in shops, people who cut our hair, people in our family, school gate, whatever it was. Some of the stories that the guys shared were remarkable. We're just a very ordinary bunch of people who pray together on a Friday afternoon. But God opened doors and all those different books like this were given away. And little stories came back to encourage us. And I try and carry one in my back pocket now whenever I leave the house. I'd love you to have a go at doing this, even if you are a bit nervous, because it may be that that person that you pass this book on to, for the first time, recognizes that they're precious, recognizes that they can be protected, and finds in their life, for the first time maybe, a new purpose, which helps them get up in the morning. I'm around afterwards. You can give me the money. I promise you I'll get you the books. Just a little challenge. But they are three incredible truths, which if we grasp, will change everything. This is eternal life, Jesus Christ says, that you may know me and the life that I want to give you. And I pray that each of you will know that this morning. Amen.